friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. This week uh, is the second week of Lent, but it is the fourth week of the Russian invasion into the Ukraine. This has been weighing on all of our hearts, the terrifying images and videos coming out of Ukraine, the deaths, our own TCA chaplain, Father Roger Landry, on to discuss how to make the most of these 40 days of Lent, especially in light of the dire situation in Ukraine, thinking all the time of so many Catholics and other Christians there living underground, celebrating Mass, by candlelight, praying to make it to the next morning. With a humanitarian crisis underway in Ukraine, we also chat with Edward Graham. He's the Vice President of Operations for Samaritan's Purse. That's an organization doing so much to help relieve some of the suffering uh, of our fellow brothers and sisters in Ukraine, including pop-up, fully staffed field hospitals. But first... I'm here with my TCA colleague and co-host Maureen Ferguson, and we are very honored and very blessed to have Vice President Mike Pence joining us. He himself just arrived back home from the Ukraine with his wife, Karen. Welcome to the show, Mr. Pence. Oh, I'm so pleased to be with you, and uh, thank you for including me in the broadcast. Thank you so much for coming on, and we wanted to talk to you especially about your recent trip to the Ukraine. You visited there Samaritan's Purse. We'll be speaking later to Edward Graham, who's the Vice President of Samaritan's Purse, but we know that you were there in person and we wanted to get your personal impression of the great humanitarian disaster that's happening there. Well, thank you. My wife Karen and I were were traveling through the Middle East and we made uh, arrangements to travel to the uh, the border of uh, Ukraine in Poland to witness firsthand uh, a refugee crisis that has, has seen two and a half from the unspeakable violence that the Russian military is visiting on on the people of Ukraine. And and I must tell you, it was just simply heartbreaking. With, as, as I'm sure Edward Graham, who joined us last Friday, will attest, it was a, it was a scene that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. Everyone knows that, that Ukraine is requiring men between ages of 18 and 60 to remain in the country, but to literally see, you know, lines and lines and crowds of people that are all women and children, mothers with a with one baby on her back and one baby in her arms and carrying all their earthly possessions in this vast uh, exodus from Russian violence just was truly heartbreaking uh, for me and my wife, Karen. But it, we wanted to go because uh, we just wanted to underscore just how important it was uh, for the United States to continue to bring economic pressure uh, on Russia, for our country to continue to provide the Ukrainian military with the means to defend themselves, but for everyone within the sound of my voice to understand how great the need is on a humanitarian basis for basic supplies 
food, water, medicine for for people fleeing Ukraine and for those that are still in Ukraine. And so, it, you know, now more than ever, supporting you know Catholic relief efforts, supporting organizations like Samaritan's Purse and, and Red Crosses, never been more important. Uh, as as I said when I returned, the, the need is great, but God is greater. <laughs> and I just know the American people and believers around the world are going to continue to pour forth resources for these these families. And uh, and to see it firsthand was uh, something I'll never forget as long as I live. And, you know, you've seen a lot, so that's really saying something. You've seen a lot of disaster and war-torn areas around the world. Mr. Vice President, you are such a person of strong faith. Your faith, your dear wife Karen's faith has always been such an inspiration to me. And something I've been struggling with is how to explain this kind of evil to our children. And I'm thinking in particular of our littlest, our fifth grade Lucy, who sees the newspaper headlines on the kitchen counter. And, uh, you know, I think of the image of that pregnant mother being carried out of the bombed out maternity hospital. I think that's seared into all of our minds. So how do you, as a person of faith, square this kind of evil in your head with what we know of our God, who was all good and all loving. Mm. Well, Maureen, thank you for the kind words. You know, we, we love your family and we were, our family was honored to serve with your family those years in the Congress. And, you know, I must tell you, it's, it's, uh, sometimes I say the older I get, the truer the Bible gets. The truth mm. is that the, the, the Bible speaks of evil plainly and, um, that we're to overcome evil with good. But it doesn't doesn't say for a moment that evil doesn't exist, and and we are reminded in moments like this with a man-made natural disaster. This is a, uh, you know, Samaritan's Purse, as uh, Edward Graham will articulate, and, and and Catholic relief efforts around the world are always there at the tip of the spear when there's hurricanes and floods and tornadoes and and natural disasters, and and uh, but this is a man-made disaster. Of, of of incredible proportions and not only it's it's a testament to the reality of evil but i must tell you to see those relief workers out in the cold to see people that have literally dropped everything in their life to go and help perfect strangers uh reminds me of the of, of the goodness uh in people's hearts and and uh, uh and i i i left deeply saddened by the tragedy that we saw but deeply inspired by by those that were opening their homes and volunteering and even going into harm's way to be there for for uh, for those families in Ukraine. You know, I, I read an account from Samaritan's Purse about one of their church shelters, and it was an account of a young mother with a bunch of little kids in tow. And when she got to the shelter, she said she whispered a prayer for them all and said, they'll sleep now as they fell into their beds. And she said, and when they finally fall asleep, I will cry myself to sleep too. But now that I'm oh. here at this church where I know God is with me, so I will wake up tomorrow and know that I can make it through another day. Uh, I'm sure you heard a lot of similar stories on the border there. Um, Can you tell us about some of the particular people you spoke with on the border? I did. That story makes me think of a young mother. I asked her how long it had taken her to get to the border, and she was holding the hand of what I, a little girl who looked to be about five years old, and she said it took us five days. And then she said, because my daughter was in the hospital for two days. Uh, She said she was very sick. But but then they made the journey. And I looked at the little girl who, you know, and I'm just talking as a dad right now. She she didn't look well yet. But, 
you know, I just, I, I looked her daughter in the eye and I said, it's going to be okay. And, and she smiled and, and I, I knew that as they were crossing into the border, crossing out of Ukraine that, you know, that she knew her mother had been there for her, but it was, uh, it was just heartbreaking, but it was just one, one experience after another. But, um, uh, it's one of the reasons why our country has to stand so strong. We have to make sure the Ukrainian military has everything that they need to defend themselves. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we have to endure you know, strong economic sanctions, including including sanctions on Russian oil that will no doubt continue to impact the cost of gasoline here in th- this country at the pump. And, but we also have to, every one of us, I, I just think anyone in the sound of my voice and your listeners all across the country, just before the day is out, uh, whether it is Samaritan's Purse, which is an organization that is literally on the ground, whether it be the host of Catholic charities that I know are already at work uh, at churches across Ukraine, but uh, or whether it be American Red Cross to find an organization that you can support, because as I said, the, the need is great, but our God is greater. We do want to hear about Samaritan's Purse, though, Mr. Vice President, because you were there visiting one of their field hospitals. What is that like to see a pop-up field hospital suddenly arriving out of nowhere to save lives? Well, when Karen and I left office, uh, we had, had determined to take a, a portion of our time to to be involved in ministry, and, and there was it was a very uh, easy decision for us to to decide to work with. Uh, Samaritan's Purse on a volunteer basis. We've we've traveled with them to Louisiana. We've we've traveled with them to a veterans program. We we were in Kentucky with Edward Graham not long ago in the aftermath of the devastating tornadoes. And uh, this is an organization that has uh, literally for decades now come alongside people in some of the most set upon circumstances in our country and around the world. And for our part, uh, we crossed into Ukraine and and met with relief workers there and met with refugees. But to their credit, Samaritan's Purse actually built a field hospital in Lviv, which is roughly an hour from the Ukrainian border. We did not travel there, but I know your next guest, uh, Edward Graham, has traveled there, and they have a team on the ground that's uh, that's that's meeting the practical needs of people that are dealing uh, dealing with this Russian invasion as we speak. And uh, but uh, it's a wonderful organization. They do everything in Jesus' name. Uh, they uh, they give credit where credit is due. Uh, but to see the way that doctors and nurses and and volunteers come forward uh, through that organization has been deeply inspiring for us to be a small part of it. Well, we've been incredibly inspired, too, by the work of, of Samaritan's Person, as you mentioned, all the other aid organizations along the border. You know, I'm thinking about Poland and, you know, where almost three million of the refugees have now fled to. And this is a country with such deep Christian roots and such a history of suffering as a people and a history of resisting this kind of tyranny. And when when I think of one of your heroes, Ronald Reagan, who worked with Pope John Paul II and the Solidarity Movement in Poland to resist, you know, the old Russian aggressors, I'm thinking about the religious and civil leaders working hand-in-hand to fight for human dignity in this instance. And, of course, President Zelensky has just been so inspiring to the entire world. I'm wondering if you could reflect on that a little bit bit for us, kind of the role that people of faith play in historical events like this. Maureen, I actually met President Zelensky and spent time with him uh, in Warsaw in uh, 
in 2019 when we were both attending mm. the 80th anniversary of uh, the beginning of World War II uh, with the uh, with the invasion of Poland. And um, we were on the square where Pope John Paul II spoke in the midst of the Solidarity Movement decades later. Um, wow. And, and and at the end of uh, at the end of his sermon, uh, history records that the people in the hundreds of thousands that had gathered around that square that now is now is marked by an immense white cross where the Pope spoke. People began chanting, "We want God, we want God," mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, and it was the faith of the people of Poland that saw them through the dark years of uh, of Nazism, the the dark years of Soviet repression and i and i believe that it it is uh it is the faith of the people of ukraine and all of the countries around that are coming alongside them that will see them through this time but you know there are more than three thousand churches across ukraine that samaritan's Purse has already worked with over the years with their christmas box program and 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 those are the and the churches all across poland are are, are opening up uh you know, uh, opening up their sanctuaries, opening up their cafeterias and their gymnasium uh, to refugees. And uh, it's an incredible testament of the power of faith. And, and I have no doubt that, that freedom will prevail uh, in time uh, in Ukraine. I, I just believe it because you know, there was a, a, a great leader in the 19th century in South America who said the people who love freedom will in the end be free. And in in the midst of this violence, I think the courage you're seeing from President Zelensky and the people of Ukraine is uh, evidence of their faith and their love for freedom. Well, we know we have to let you go in a minute, but I want to ask you about just one other issue. But it's a related issue because it's an issue of human dignity and respect for innocent lives. And I know this is a cause that's so close to your heart. But it was so distressing and astonishing, really, that the first vote that the U.S. Senate took after Putin launched this war in Ukraine, it wasn't about economic sanctions. It wasn't about humanitarian aid. But the Senate's first order of business when they came back to Washington was to vote on this Women's Health Protection Act that would have enshrined in federal law an absolute right to abortion. And, of course, the abortion lobby is pushing for a vote on this bill in anticipation of the Supreme Court Dobbs decision that we all are praying about. And I'm just wondering if you could leave us on on a note of hope, perhaps, about the Dobbs decision and how the Supreme Court might rule in that case. Well, I I truly do believe that Perhaps the most significant legacy of the Trump-Pence administration was the appointment of over 300 judges to our federal courts, including three justices to the Supreme Court of the United States. And it is my hope and my prayer that 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 that, that conservative majority on the Supreme Court of the United States will give us a new beginning for life. And I believe I, I believe the day will come when we send Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs. And, and my hope is that that day will come with the decision in the Dobbs case before the Supreme Court. I, I just encourage I encourage all your listeners to uh, pray for uh, pray for the justices on the Supreme Court to have the courage of their convictions. I, I know all of the justices personally, and uh, we need to pray that mm-hmm. they have the courage of their convictions. I, I think we ought to pray for all of our leaders to understand right. so much to pray there for. is there. <laughs> There is no cause like the cause of life, and we've got to restore the sanctity of life 
the center of American law. But, but, uh, but if the last thing I would say is that we should we should be praying for post Roe America. That should the Supreme Court overturn Roe versus Wade, Maureen, as you know, is one of the great champions of the right to life for the last twenty years. All that will do is return this issue to the states and to the people. And there are many states that we know will immediately adopt pro-life laws. There are states that would not absent new leadership and change. So I just I I hope we're also praying uh, to prepare our hearts for the post-Roe America to to do what needs to be done uh, to restore uh, the the right to life uh, to its rightful place in American law. Well, thank you for those words, Mr. Vice President, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great honor for our radio show to have you and to tell us about your time in the Ukraine and, and energize our prayers um, with that with that eyewitness and, um, and your descriptions of the terrible suffering there. We will pray for you and your wife, Karen, and, uh, and for the rest of the country. So thank you. Thank you all so much, and God bless you. With a humanitarian crisis underway in Ukraine, we also chat with Edward Graham. He's the Vice President of Operations for Samaritan's Purse. Thank you so much for joining us, Edward Graham of Samaritan's Purse. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. We were very impressed reading about your um, the way that the Samaritan's Purse jumped to the rescue of Ukrainians in this terrible time of trouble that they're having. When you first heard of, when you saw all this unfolding, what did you know that Samaritan's Purse had to do? Yeah, well, I knew um, there's going to be a great humanitarian crisis. There always is with war, but I knew with um, this type of warfare and these and these. Uh, two sizes of country, we're talking about a great human loss. And I knew there was going to be a large movement of people. And right now, uh, millions have already fled from Ukraine. This is the largest uh, human movement in Europe since World War II. Um, so I knew there'd be a great medical need. Samaritan's purses have been trusted. Now the Lord's given us um, unbelievable medical resources and field hospitals and aircraft and doctors and nurses that we can deploy anywhere in the world in about 36 hours. And so we knew there'd be that need. We knew there'd be feeding food needs, non-food items like blankets, solar uh, powered lights. And those type of things that we give out other times. This is where Samaritan's Purse responds in crisis like this. And so when I saw this unfolding, we started preparing, getting ready where we knew we could best respond. And are you concentrating your efforts, Edward, on the on the border as and as as the Ukrainians uh, flee to the border? Uh, so we're on both. We're in three different locations. Uh, we're in Poland, we're in uh, Romania, and we're in Moldova. But our field hospital we set up in Lviv, Ukraine. So we're inside Ukraine with a field hospital. This is a tier three surgical uh, hospital. But we've also set up a step-down clinic near the train station at the base of the steps of the train station, Levy. This is where we're treating a lot of cold weather injuries, uh, exhaustion, dehydration. Women are giving birth on the train or coming off in labor, and we're receiving those women. Um, and then we're able to triage and send them to our hospital. So we're actually working inside Ukraine, but also with our churches. We do Operation Christmas Child, which is a where most people think it's a gift, a shoebox gift full of toys. But we do gospel presentations with each time we give out a shoebox and we're partnered with 3,300 churches in Ukraine. So we're partnered with those churches financially, but also helping them with food and feeding programs, food distribution. When I was there on the ground, the Ukrainian church is just unbelievable what they're doing. They're being the church. They're loving their neighbors. They're helping transport refugees, but they're housing them for the night, feeding them, getting them onto the border. And then the next group comes in. 
They're actually picking people up at train stations, bringing them to the churches. They converted the churches into shelters. And I just couldn't be more proud of the church in Ukraine and what they're doing. Wow, it's such an unbelievable effort, and it's all been done on a dime, really. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about these field hospitals. They Are they literally tents that you've set up along the border. Um, I understand they have, you know, full capacity for major surgery, minor surgeries, uh, emergency rooms that can handle a hundred patients a day. How do you do this on the fly? Yeah, these are, uh, they're tent hospitals that we can blow up. They're zero pressure hospitals. Many people are now familiar with them because we set them up during COVID. We set them up in Italy and New York City and, and Central Park, set them up in LA County here in North Carolina as well. Um, but these are self-sustaining hospitals. And with COVID, usually what we did was tie them into a wing of another hospital. Basically, you become like an additional wing to the hospital. In places like Ukraine or when we set them up in Africa or like we did in Erbil, they're a separate hospital, freestanding on their own. Um, we have doctors and nurses that are from the U.S., from Canada, the U.K., Australia, that have uh, jobs where they're serving in hospitals. But they, they sign up for what we call a disaster assistant response team. So these are high, uh, highly trained professionals that have been trained with us to serve in the field, um, vetted by us, and then we deploy them to serve during a time of crisis. But we do this because, yes, we want to do great work. Yes, we want to heal people. Just like the story of the Good Samaritan, we want to meet the immediate needs of those that are suffering in the ditch. But we want to take care of the long term, and that's, that's the gospel to us. So they're going to ask you, why are you here? Why are you treating me? And that's when you're in the right well because we love you, but more importantly, Jesus Christ loves you. And uh, that's why we go. And so we got an unbelievable team, uh, unbelievable assets. We have our own cargo planes. So that allows us to deploy these hospitals and our staff um, anywhere in the world. And like I said, about 36 hours notice, we can deploy and be set up and running. It's almost like Samaritan's Purse. Uh, this is this is your big moment um, when you can fulfill, can you fill this need that's so tremendous in the Ukraine? I can't imagine anyone else, uh, any of the other organizations being this ready to to give this much medical aid? Or is are there any other organizations that are at your level? I don't believe there's any other organization that can deploy at this level and has field hospitals set up in the shelves, ready to go. We can tailor the hospital, whether it be surgical, whether it can be uh, infectious disease, because we help fight Ebola as well. Um, any new Dr. Brantley, the American doctor, and the first American to get Ebola, that was brought back to, uh, to Atlanta for treatment and survived. We've been doing these type of hospitals and setting up these responses for a while, um, but I don't think anyone can respond in the time we do just because we have the aircraft. We have the the disaster assistant response team standing by on alert, on call with the right. I mean, anywhere you set up a hospital, it's about clean water and power. Mm-hmm. So if we set it up in a city like Ukraine, usually you have access to those. But if you put it in a field in Africa, you don't. And so we have our own water engineers. We have our own electricians that specialize in this. And these are resources that God's entrusts us to us. They're not my father's. They're not Samaritan's. They're God's. And he directs us where we go. And we do it, like I said, because we want to love our neighbor and love them in the name of Jesus Christ. Edward, I'm a doctor, and I, I work very comfortably in my home in Miami. And I'm wondering about your medical professionals. What kind of people are these that will give up their comfort, their safety, and fly into a war zone? Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand it myself. You know, I spent 16 years in special operations, but I was trained to do that. And it's what, you know, that's what the the U.S. paid me to do. Um, And I went to school at West Point for that. These doctors and nurses, electricians, sometimes, yeah, I'll date myself, but if you remember the show MacGyver, uh, we need (laughs) MacGyvers that can fix and do anything um, when they go out there. We have construction guys like that that help set this up. But these are people, like you said, that have jobs and families, but they're willing to drop all of it 
because they believe in the mission that Samaritan's stands for. And I keep saying it, but it is loving our neighbor. It doesn't matter where you are in this world, who you are, what your background is, what your, your religious background is. You're, you're a child of God, and we love you. And we want, we want you to know that God has not taken his eyes off Ukraine. These Ukrainians are hurting. They're scared. But God has not forsaken them, and he loves them. And the Easter's coming up. And uh, all the more reason, I want them to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and loves them. And, um, and he has not forsaken them. And that's why our team goes. That's why these professionals leave. They believe in that mission. And I can't really answer your question. I just know that we have some of the best talent that God's entrusts us with. It goes back to scripture about the tenants, you know, or the bags of gold that God can entrust you with. And I think of Samaria's purse. It's the people that God brings our way that he entrusts us. And what are we going to do with those people? How are we going to invest them in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? And that's by doing his work. And medicine is a magnet for the gospel. You know, you had a very special visitor at one of your field hospitals on the border of Ukraine this past week. Vice President, former Vice President Pence and his wife Karen were there with you. And I'm wondering if you could share any reflections on that and also let our listeners know how we can be of help to Samaritan's Purse and your heroic efforts there. Well, thanks. Um, So former Vice President Pence and his wife Karen, they're wonderful people. And uh, good friends of the ministry, they support us. They tithe with their time. Uh, they were with me recently up in Mayfield, Kentucky. They've been down, and that's where we had the tornadoes. Uh, they were there helping cleaning up debris and clean up homes. They did it in Louisiana as well with flooding down there. Um, but they wanted to go to uh, the border there in Ukraine to highlight what the refugees are going through and some of the health challenges that are going through and why Samaritan's Purse has responded. And they want to bring world attention. He knows he has a platform and that people listen. And he wants to draw attention to what is going on in Ukraine. And there is a need. There is a humanitarian need. And there is a uh, spiritual need in Ukraine. And uh, he supports some Samaritan's Purse's efforts. I don't want to speak for him on his behalf, but he's, um, uh, he's a great man uh, that loves the Lord and fears the Lord. And he wants to use his time to share and to give to others. And so we were fortunate to have him there. He talked to many of the refugees coming across, heartbreaking stories that he heard, and unbelievable uh, survival stories. And you hear one after another, and the people are tired. They're crying. They break down. They're crying with them. There's anger. There's frustration. But these refugees are not fighting in line. They're not pushing through each other. They're not cunning. They're cutting each other. They're being respectful, kind, and waiting their turn, and they just want to get to safety. And I've never seen anything like it before. It breaks your heart. Um, But he saw it firsthand, him and his wife. Well, thank you for joining us today, Edward, and thank you for highlighting the beautiful work of Samaritan's Purse. And we hope that our listeners will go to your website, SamaritansPurse.org, and contribute to this absolutely crucial and vital effort that you're making for the people of Ukraine. You know, I appreciate it. I just ask your listeners to pray. Pray for peace. Uh, A peace that only Jesus Christ can bring about.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, Father. It's great to be back with you, Gracie, and with all those who listen to us every week. Yes, and all, all our listeners who are so fortunate as to have your Sunday homily for them already. It's always so inspiring and so good for us uh, to start thinking about the Sunday Gospel a couple days earlier. It makes a big difference in how I experience the Sunday Mass. And I like the format in a program dedicated to consequential conversations that we're able to recognize that the most important conversation we have on any given day is the conversation with God. And sometimes we can listen at Sunday Mass as if what's being read is about a place far, far away at a time long, long ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than an actual event. One of the reasons why we stand, for example, at the Alleluia in preparation for the Gospel is the Second Vatican Council describes for us, because Jesus Christ speaks live when the gospel is proclaimed at Mass. And so even when I'm proclaiming with a beautiful New England accent, <laughs> it is Jesus's words that he announced 2,000 years ago, whether from a boat or a mountainside or walking along the dusty paths of Palestine. We're listening to Jesus, and so he wants to engage us, not just in a dialogue of words or thoughts, but in a dialogue of persons, that we exchange persons with him in the prayer through sacred scripture. So it's it's a great privilege for me to be able to to focus on that concrete gospel conversation each week and to have people who want to listen to it. Father, this Lent has been colored for us by the terrible catastrophe that's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, all of us, I think, are, are paying a lot of attention. We're, we're horrified. We're praying really hard for, for, for everyone involved, um, even the young Russian soldiers who are sent out to fight uh, for, no re- you know, for no choice of their own. How can we use uh, the, the vision, this vision of suffering and, and our care, the care of our hearts for these people who are suffering to make our Lent a better Lent? So the first thing we always do as Catholics, the most important thing we do is to pray. Sometimes people can look at prayers and escape from hard work, for example. It's never meant to be that way with God. But throughout sacred scripture, there are so many examples of how God's people in desperation turned to him, and he rescued miraculously. And so we should never underestimate the power of our prayer, because nothing is impossible with God. So the first thing we need to be doing for that situation in the Ukraine is getting knee calluses, Mm. just constantly Mm -hmm. dropping down and beseeching the Lord as if our life depends on it, because so many lives, in fact, do, and you never know when the same type of totalitarian craziness, which is happening now in the Ukraine, thanks to Vladimir Putin, for whose conversion we need to be praying with insistence, but who knows what could ever happen to us here or anywhere else. We can't take for granted that we're always going to be able to live in safety. We need to be praying very seriously, not just for the sensation of hostility being waged in a unilateral direction, but also for real peace. And, you know, peace in the world is not just this lack of war. Peace is a series of qualities that really creates harmony and tranquility based on, as Pope Francis always liked to say, fraternity. So that's our first step to be praying like crazy for this. The second, throughout Lent, we fast as Catholics. You know, and sometimes we can fast in order to gain self-mastery so that if we're taming our lower appetites, we can hunger for what God hungers. A lot of the times it's, as Jesus says in the gospel, an opportunity for us to recognize those parts of our life that are not 
with him who is the bridegroom. And because the bridegroom has been taken away, we're fasting for that sphere of our life, likewise to be in communion. But as we see throughout sacred scripture, fasting was a particular type of bodily prayer for really important intentions. You see it with the prophets. You see it with Jesus out in the desert. You see it with Queen Esther before she was going to be asking King Ahasuerus to save the Jewish people there in Babylon. But fasting is an extraordinarily important way to pray. And when we fast, we're also in greater communion with many of the Ukrainians who are wondering where their next meal is going to come from and whether a truck at the risk of the driver's life is going to be arriving from Western Ukraine or Poland in order to bring supplies. And so second thing we could be doing, and then the third I'd say is during Lent, the church calls everybody to real almsgiving. And that summons to charity needs to be lived in a particularly generous way with those in the Ukraine. A little bit of our American dollars can go a long way there to be able to help, particularly with the refugee crisis, all those who have lost everything and had to have been in their homes, just to be able to have food, to be able to have shelter, to be able to have medicine, to be able to have money for transport, for all the rest of it. I mean, this is a time when we're just not giving something to some organization that might need it. Mm -hmm. But this is in response to a desperate crisis. And, you know, Jesus tells us at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, words that always bring tears to my eyes. He said, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me, thirsty, you gave me something to drink, etc. And then they will say, Lord, when did we ever do any of this for you? And he said, as often as I, as you have done it for the least of my brothers and sisters, you've done it for me. And if we're generous at this point, one time we're going to see Jesus smiling at us with a face that resembles the Ukrainian brothers and sisters whose uh, saddened faces we're seeing so often on the nightly news. Earlier in the show, I spoke to uh, Edward Graham. Of, he's the vice president of Samaritan's Purse. And it, that's an organization that's doing really uh, crucial work in in the Ukraine. They have pop up field hospitals, and they are they're not only feeding some of the some of the people and the refugees that need it, but they're also attending to them medically, which is a huge need. And I was I was really overcome talking to him by the the the, the generosity of all these uh, people that uh, at a moment's notice they stand up and they they fly to a war zone to take care of their brothers and sisters whether they're the people who set up the electricity or carry food or the surgeons and nurses. Um, I, I, I think that when we see these crises in the world and, and we think that the devil has won, <laughs> it almost feels that way, right? Yeah. Like the devil has finally won the battle. Then we also see the face of Christ in so many people that run to, to fight him. As, as Christians, we know that thanks be to God, the battle has been won on our side. <laughs> so the, the the devil yet hasn't gotten the memo, and he's trying to increase his side, on his side, the number of lifetime casualties. But I, I agree with the essential point that when we are looking at the evil that's occurring over in the Ukraine, we could likewise look at Yemen, we can look at northern Nigeria. Ukraine isn't the only place where atrocities are occurring today, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But when we look at those situations, it is regular and common for us to be a little depressed mm -hmm. at the situation in the world. But we have so many more people doing good. 
like the doctors you've just described, who at the risk of their life are going to save lives. And then so many other people who are really sacrificing for people. And, you know, the stories that I'm hearing from the priests with whom I'm in contact with in the Ukraine, they're describing all these acts of generosity, first from their fellow Ukrainians who, basically losing everything, are sacrificing for people who have lost more or need anything. But then throughout the entire world, they're kind of blown away by how much attention people are paying. There was one beautiful story. You know, I'm a missionary of mercy Mm -hmm. uh, from the Jubilee of Mercy in 2016. Pope Francis gave about a thousand priests at that point special abilities in the sacrament of confession to heal the punishments due to special ecclesiastical grants that only the Pope can have. But there are 27 missionaries of mercy in the Ukraine. And with a brother missionary of mercy from the Diocese of Spokane, Washington, we we, we wrote all 27 of these. And several of them were written back and we offered, like, is there any way we can help you beyond our prayers? One of these priests said to me, you know, Father, thank you so much for that offer of generosity, but right now we have seven days of bread, so we don't need anything. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and that's for his whole parish, right? That we have we have a supply of seven days of bread, so if it were to get desperate, it's so um, important for us to know that we have some place to turn. But like seven days of bread, and they feel like they're the luckiest people around because, you know, not only has God given them that day their daily bread, but he's given it to them for a week. And so, like, we've got so much to learn about their faith, hope, and love that can strengthen us in our own circumstances where so often we're building grain bins in our pantries (laughs) for several weeks, whereas they feel surfeited with seven days of bread in the middle of a war zone. Touched me very much to see that type of simplicity as well as that type of faith. One thing that's been occurring to me very much watching what's happening in the Ukraine is that we're seeing the explosion of evil on this on this great state, on the world stage in a way that um, is so so obvious and, and, and so shocking, right? The, the terrible images and the blood and the loss of life. But... I've been thinking that we have that same kind of lack of peace right here at home in our own families, within our own hearts, in our own personal relations. And it's really all that's it's all the same thing. It's just that what we see in the Ukraine or in other terrible places where war has broken out is we see it on we see it writ larger. But it's really not any different from the way that we ourselves experience sin and the lack of peace. Am, am I being dramatic or is that a good way to think about it? There are multiple manifestations of the consequences of our sinful choices. We've got it at a daily level, and each of us has to look in the mirror honestly before God. And then we see it at this macroscopic, totally devastating level. That's where individual sinful choices ultimately lead. Mm -hmm. Like we recognize that all our sins ultimately led to the crucifixion of goodness himself on Calvary. And so as soon as we begin to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and become one with evil, we see in the next generation after the separation of God that Cain kills Abel. Mm -hmm. And so that's where sin ultimately leads. It leads to an eclipse of God and it leads to dehumanization of others because we begin to get so focused on our own desires that we begin to use others as instruments. And that's the unfortunate background for the ugly and really um, awful images that we're seeing of so many who have suffered so much 
in the Ukraine. And that's one of the reasons why our prayer, our fasting, our almsgiving changed the world through the communion of saints. And so on those times where we feel powerless to do anything or we virtue signal to the president of the United States or other world leaders, this is what you should do. We need to stop and say, this is what I can do today because we've all got some power in our hands because the almighty God has made our prayer, our fasting and our almsgiving um, far more capable than we would be able to do just by ourselves. So our own personal conversion could be something that that we can work on during Lent uh, as a way of lessening the amount of evil in the world and and helping our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Is that true? Yeah, that's always been the church's teaching that both sin has a massive ripple effect, Mm -hmm. but also goodness through the communion of saints has a big um, impact. Who knows what our choices today for the good are able going to be able to do later. They can save lives, but they can also start this um, chain of goodness. Like when we look at how many saints have come out of war situations, um, it's 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 a countless litany. Mm-hmm. Mother Teresa being born when she was in that culture, John Paul II being born and having grown up both under Nazism and communism, and what that forged. God's, God wants to be responding to the evil and the destruction of Ukraine and what it means for the world by raising up many, many saintly sons and daughters. And that happens one good yes to God at a time. Father, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask for a good explanation about um, on March 28th, Pope Francis is going to consecrate Russia and the Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. I was under the impression that this had already been done. It has to do with Our Lady of Fatima and the way that she asked for this consecration, especially of Russia. Um, what's going to happen on March 28th and how should we participate and what, what's, the, what's the significance of this? I think the actual date, Gracie, is March 25th on the Annunciation. At least oh, that's yes, what I'm I saw. Sorry. You're right, yeah, Father. That's, that's sorry, what Father. I saw. So it's it's tied into the Annunciation, right, where the Archangel Gabriel would have come to Mary and proposed to her on behalf of all of heaven for the human race to say yes to God's plan. And so it's a beautiful day to do the consecration of Our Lady. What we're really talking about is a reconsecration to Our Lady, because in 1917, our, Our Lady, after giving the young shepherd children a vision of hell, a vision of all the suffering and blood of the world due to atheistic communism, and then the um, sufferings of the church, including a bishop in white being shot, after all of that, she said the remedy would be consecration to her immaculate heart. And so Pope Pius XII led the church in a consecration in 1942. Um, During the Second Vatican Council, there was another consecration. In 1984, John Paul II, with the bishops around the world, including one he sent into a phone booth inside the Kremlin, consecrated um, Russia and all countries in need to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And Sister uh, Lucy, one of the three Fatima seers, said that John Paul II did it precisely as she wanted. Pope Francis, responding to appeals across the world, is going to be renewing that consecration in the Vatican. And he sent his papal almsgiver, um, Cardinal Kriuzek, is his name, Conrad, Don Corrado, we call him, to Fatima to do it simultaneously. So why do we do that? 
because a heart that's united to God like Mary's is more powerful than all the bombs and the missiles in the world combined. And so Pope Francis is trying to focus the attention of the entire praying world on openness to God's grace and our um, need to say yes to God to be more powerful than those who are saying no to God and no to their brothers in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And there will be a novena, I think, that we can all join in with, right? Uh, starting maybe tomorrow, because that would be nine well, days. The, the the Greek Catholic Archbishop uh, there in Kiev has asked everybody to begin with a novena prior to that consecration. And so I think both opportunities, the novena as well as joining in that consecration, are really beautiful ways for us to pray open to what God himself can do, because nothing is impossible for him. And I just urge, at the same time that we're trying to consecrate Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, that each of us do the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, John Paul II, each morning, would re-consecrate himself to Our Lady with a beautiful prayer, and maybe we can finish this segment where I'll give you what he prayed, and then I'll translate it. He got his motto from it. He said, totus... Totus tuus ego sum, I am all yours, Mary, et tota mea tua sunt, and all the things that I have belong to you. A chipiote in mea omnia, I receive you into the totality of all that I am and have. Prebe mihi cortuum, O Maria. Give me your heart, O Mary. And so I just urge you, in those words, you can find it easily, just totus tuus prayer, John Paul II, on Google, you'd be able to get those prayers, which he originally took from St. Louis-Marie Grignon de Montfort, so that you can personally consecrate yourself at the same time Pope Francis is going to be consecrating Russia and the Ukraine to Mary's all-powerful, pure, immaculate heart. Oh Well, thank you, Father, for that wonderful advice, and thank you for joining us every week with your homily. And to our listeners, you can always find Father Roger's homilies at catholicpreaching.org. A blessed Lent, Gracie, to you and to all those listening to us. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel, when he will speak to us what are, in my opinion, his most forceful words of conversion that we hear in the 156-week cycle of the Church's Sunday liturgical readings. Two and a half weeks ago, you recall, as Lent began, we were marked with ashes, reminded that we're dust, and in the dust we shall return upon our death, and instructed to repent and believe in the Gospel. We listened with fresh ears to St. Paul's appeal as an ambassador of Christ, calling us to be reconciled to God, appealing to us not to take this time in vain, and begging us not to procrastinate, saying, now is the acceptable time, now is the day of salvation. This Sunday's readings shock us out of complacency, almost as defibrillator paddles for our souls, and get us to examine honestly before the Lord whether we've been responding to this acceptable time of mercy with the urgency and priority that God desires, or whether we've been taking these 40 days and perhaps our whole Christian life and calling for granted. In Sunday's Gospel, Jesus begins with current events, referring to two tragedies that had captured the attention of the crowds in previous days. 
If Jesus were preaching today, he could easily make the same point, referring to the appalling atrocities being committed in the Ukraine or about any fatal car accident we see on the news. Someone asked Jesus' opinion about the massacre of Galileans by Pontius Pilate in the temple, whose blood has been had been mixed with animal sacrifices. Those pilgrims from Galilee had made the long journey to the temple in Jerusalem to pray, but they had gotten caught up in a crowd where protests were demonstrating against Pilate's decision to raid the temple coffers for funds to build a new water system. When Pilate sent his troops to quell the protests, the soldiers met resistance, unsheathed their swords, and massacred not only the protesters, but these Galilean bystanders. There was superstition at the time that if people died in such a way, it had to be a sign that God was punishing them for some serious sins they had committed, as if they somehow deserved it. Jesus asks, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were greater sinners than all other Galileans? No way, he replied. Then he raised another example of people who were bathing underneath the water tower at the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, where they believed that the miraculous powers in the water would cure them of bodily illnesses. The shoddily constructed tower collapsed and crushed to death some of those bathing. Jesus asked again whether the 18 people who died were more guilty than everyone else who lived in Jerusalem. By no means, he replied again, and he made a crucial moral point in response to both tragedies. I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. Jesus didn't mean that we would all die by being in the wrong place at the wrong time as a victim of some terrible accident. He meant that unless we repent, we will die as unready as the pilgrims from Galilee in the temple or those underneath the Siloam water tower. The only way we'll be ready to die well, to die ready to pass to life, will be if we repent and believe in the gospel. If we recognize that now is the day of salvation and live each day as if it is our last, if we recognize our need for God's mercy and grace, come to receive it, and then begin to live in full accordance with those gifts. To drive home the point of the urgent need for us to respond to him in his call in Lent and in life, Jesus gives us the parable of the fruitless fig tree. The fig tree represents human life, the owner, God the Father, the gardener, Jesus. The owner came looking for fruit on the fig tree and finding none said to the gardener, for three years now I have come in search of fruit on this fig tree, but I have found none. So cut it down. Why should it exhaust the soil? The point, harsh as it may initially seem to our ears, is clear. Some people are sadly wasting their life, not bearing any fruit whatsoever. Some people receive all types of gifts from the soil, but give nothing back. Such people, the parable indicates, are wasting the soil. They merit, according to the parable, to be cut down, not as a punishment, but because in some respects, they're already dead. The lesson is that if a Christian is not bearing fruit, he or she is spiritually dead. If a Christian is living like everyone else, compromising with sin, identifying more with the standards of the world than the standards of the gospel and Christ's kingdom, then he or she is spiritually deceased. Thanks be to God, however, that's not the end of the parable. The parable has often been called the parable of the second chance because the gardener in the parable representing Jesus makes an extraordinary intervention. Fig trees normally take three years to mature, and if they're not bearing fruit by the end of that third year, they're likely never to do so. And yet the gardener beseeches the orchard owner, Sir, leave it this year as well, and I shall cultivate the ground around it and fertilize it. It may bear fruit in the future. If not, you can cut it down.
He asks for an opportunity to try, essentially, to raise the fig tree from the dead, to help something that has not yet borne fruit, might never will, to be given every last chance to do so. And this, too, is a lesson for our life. If we're not bearing fruit in our Christian life after the years that God has given us, if we're not growing in faith, hope, and love, if we're not bearing fruit in acts of loving prayer and service to others, if we're not living our faith and passionately sharing it, then we're like a barren fig tree, wasting our life, wasting God's grace, just like the fig tree was exhausting the soil. But Christ asked for more time for our life, fertilizing the soil of our hearts with his blood, offering us once again his mercy, his healing, his help, his grace. He goes way beyond what's reasonable so that our life, if it's spiritually sterile and barren, may have every possible chance. That's what he does each Lent. But we should never pretend as if we're guaranteed another Lent. There will be a time when there will be no time left against the devil's attempt to convince us that there will always be time later. Jesus uses current events to convince us that now, not next year, not 10 years or 50 years down the road, is the acceptable time, the time for action. Lent 2022 is a gift of extra time from the Lord so that we might become the type of tree that will bear much fruit, not out of fear of judgment, not so that we won't be cut down, but out of love for God, who loves us and has given us so many graces that we will bear fruit. There are two essential things we need to do, Jesus makes plain elsewhere in the gospel. First, we need to examine our soil to make sure it's good soil that listens attentively to his word, allows it to change us in 30, 60, or 100 ways. Second, as Jesus described during the Last Supper, we must remain attached to him. Just as a branch can't bear fruit on its own unless it remains in the vine, he tells us, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And we remain in Christ and he remains in us through prayer, the sacraments, and the Christian moral life. This is the secret of the fruitfulness of St. Joseph, whom the church celebrates on March 19th. As of the Blessed Virgin Mary and as of so many saints sins, they were ready to seize each moment as the acceptable time to bear fruit, glorifying God and serving others. They're interceding for us not to accept Jesus' merciful but stark summons in vain. The most fruitful tree that ever existed was the tree of the cross, the new tree of life. It's at Mass where Jesus fertilizes the soil of our soul so that we may bear fruit that will last as we enter into communion with him as branches on the vine. We thank him for this extra gift of time and ask him to help us seize the chance. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 